0: section 36 of volume 1d of history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of 1688 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of 1688 by david hume volume 1d Section 36, Chapter 43, Part 4 But not to give them too much encouragement in such applications, she told them in the speech which she delivered at their dissolution, that with regard to these patents, she hoped that her dutiful and loving subjects would not take away her prerogative which is the chief flower in her garden, and the principal and head-pearl in her crown and diadem, but that they would rather leave these matters to her disposal. The commons also took notice, this session, of some transactions in the court of High Commission, but not till they had previously obtained permission from Her Majesty to that purpose. Elizabeth had reason to foresee that parliamentary supplies would now become more necessary to her than ever, and that the chief burden of the war with Spain would thenceforth lie upon England. Henry had received an overture for peace with Philip, but before he would proceed to a negotiation he gave intelligence of it to his allies, the Queen and the States that if possible a general pacification might be made by common agreement these two powers sent ambassadors to france in order to remonstrate against peace the queen sir robert cecil and henry herbert the states justin nassau and john barnevelt henry said to these ministers that his early education had been amidst war and danger and he had passed the whole course of his life either in arms or in military preparations that after the proofs which he had given of his alacrity in the field no one could doubt but he would willingly for his part have continued in a course of life to which he was now habituated till the common enemy were reduced to such a condition as to no longer to give umbrage either to him or to his allies that no private interests of his own not even those of his people nothing but the most invincible necessity could ever induce him to think of a separate peace with philip or make him embrace measures not entirely conformable to the wishes of all his confederates that his kingdom torn with the convulsions of civil wars of nearly half a century required some interval of repose ere it could reach a condition in which it might sustain itself much more support its allies that after the minds of his subjects were composed to tranquillity and accustomed to obedience after his finances were brought into order and after agriculture and the arts were restored, France, instead of being a burden, as at present, to her confederates, would be able to lend them effectual succor, and amply to repay them all the assistance which she had received during her calamities, and that, if the ambition of Spain would not at present grant them such terms as they should think reasonable, He hoped that in a little time he should attain such a situation as would enable him to mediate more effectually and with more decisive authority on their behalf. The ambassadors were sensible that these reasons were not feigned, and they therefore remonstrated with the less vehemence against the measures which they saw Henry was determined to pursue. The States knew that monarch was interested never to permit their final ruin, and having received private assurances that he would still, notwithstanding the peace, give them assistance both of men and money, they were well pleased to remain on terms of amity with him. His greatest concern was to give satisfaction to Elizabeth for this breach of treaty. He had a cordial esteem for that princess, a sympathy of manners, and a gratitude for the extraordinary favors which he had received from her during his greatest difficulties and he used every expedient to apologize and atone for that measure which necessity extorted from him but as spain refused to treat with the dutch as a free state and elizabeth would not negotiate without her ally Henry found himself obliged to conclude at Vervins a separate peace, by which he recovered possession of all the places seized by Spain during the course of the civil wars, and procured to himself leisure to pursue the domestic settlement of his kingdom. His capacity for the arts of peace was not inferior to his military talents, and in a little time, by his frugality, order and wise government he raised france from the desolation and misery in which she was involved to a more flourishing condition than she had ever before enjoyed the queen knew that she could also whenever she pleased finish the war on equitable terms and that philip having no claims upon her would be glad to free himself from an enemy who had foiled him in every contest and who still had it so much in her power to make him feel the weight of her arms some of her wisest counsellors particularly the treasurer advised her to embrace pacific measures and set before her the advantages of tranquillity security and frugality as more considerable than any success which could attend the greatest victories but this high-spirited princess though at first averse to war seemed now to have attained such an ascendant over the enemy that she was unwilling to stop the course of her prosperous fortune she considered that her situation and her past victories had given her entire security against any dangerous invasion and the war must thenceforth be conducted by sudden enterprises and naval expeditions in which she possessed an undoubted superiority that the weak condition of philip in the indies opened to her the view of the most durable advantages and the yearly return of his treasure by sea afforded a continual prospect of important though more temporary successes that after his peace with france if she also should consent to an accommodation he would be able to turn his whole force against the revolted provinces of the netherlands which though they had surprisingly increased their power by commerce and good government were still unable if not supported by their confederates to maintain war against so potent a monarch and that as her defence of that commonwealth was the original ground of the quarrel it was unsafe as well as dishonorable to abandon its cause till she had placed it in a state of greater security these reasons were frequently inculcated on her by the earl of essex whose passion for glory as well as his military talents made him earnestly desire the continuance of war from which he expected to reap so much advantage and distinction the rivalship between this nobleman and lord burleigh made each of them insist the more strenuously on his own counsel but as essex's person was agreeable to the queen as well as his advice conformable to her inclinations the favorite seemed daily to acquire an ascendant over the minister had he been endowed with caution and self-command Equal to his shining qualities, he would have so riveted himself in the queen's confidence that none of his enemies had ever been able to impeach his credit. But his lofty spirit could ill submit to that implicit deference which her temper required, and which she had ever been accustomed to receive from all her subjects. Being once engaged in a dispute with her about the choice of a governor for Ireland, he was so heated in the argument that he entirely forgot the rules both of duty and civility and turned his back upon her in a contemptuous manner her anger naturally prompt and violent rose at this provocation and she instantly gave him a box on the ear adding a passionate expression suited to his impertinence instead of recollecting himself and making the submissions due to her sex and station he clapped his hand to his sword and swore that he would not bear such usage were it from henry the eighth himself and he immediately withdrew from court Edgerton, the chancellor who loved essex exhorted him to repair his indiscretion by proper acknowledgments and entreated him not to give that triumph to his enemies that affliction to his friends which must ensue from his supporting a contest with his sovereign and deserting the service of his country but essex was deeply stung with the dishonour which he had received and seemed to think that an insult which might be pardoned in a woman was become a mortal affront when it came from his sovereign if the vilest of all indignities said he is done me does religion enforce me to sue for pardon doth god require it is it impiety not to do it why cannot princes err cannot subjects receive wrong is an earthly power infinite pardon me my lord i can never subscribe to these principles let solomon's fool laugh when he is stricken Let those that mean to make their profit of princes show no sense of princes' injuries. Let them acknowledge an infinite absoluteness on earth that do not believe an absolute infiniteness in heaven. Alluding, probably, to the character and conduct of Sir Walter Raleigh, who lay under the reproach of impiety. As for me, continued he, I have received wrong. I feel it. My cause is good, I know it, and whatsoever happens, all the powers on earth can never exert more strength and constancy in oppressing than I can show in suffering every thing that can or shall be imposed upon me. Your lordship in the beginning of your letter makes me a player, and yourself a looker-on, and me a player of my own game." so you may see more than I, but give me leave to tell you that since you do but see, and I do suffer, I must of necessity feel more than you." This spirited letter was shown by Essex to his friends, and they were so imprudent as to disperse copies of it. Yet notwithstanding this additional provocation, the Queen's partiality was so prevalent, that she reinstated him in his former favor and her kindness to him appeared rather to have acquired new force from this short interval of anger and resentment the death of Burley, his antagonist which happened about the same time seemed to ensure him constant possession of the queen's confidence and nothing indeed but his own indiscretion could thenceforth have shaken his well-established credit lord burleigh died in an advanced age and by a rare fortune was equally regretted by his sovereign and the people he had risen gradually from small beginnings by the mere force of merit and though his authority was never entirely absolute or uncontrolled with the queen he was still during the course of near forty years regarded as her principal minister none of her other inclinations or affections could ever overcome her confidence in so useful a counsellor and as he had the generosity or good sense to pay assiduous court to her during her sister's reign when it was dangerous to appear her friend she thought herself bound in gratitude when she mounted the throne to persevere in her attachments to him he seems not to have possessed any shining talents of address eloquence or imagination and was chiefly distinguished by solidity of understanding probity of manners and indefatigable application in business virtues which if they do not always enable a man to attain high stations do certainly qualify him best for filling them of all the queen's ministers he alone left a considerable fortune to his posterity a fortune not acquired by rapine or oppression but gained by the regular profits of his offices and preserved by frugality the last act of this able minister was the concluding of a new treaty with the dutch who after being in some measure deserted by the king of france were glad to preserve the queen's alliance by submitting to any terms which she pleased to require of them the debt which they owed her was now settled at eight hundred thousand pounds of this sum they agreed to pay during the war thirty thousand pounds a year and these payments were to continue till four hundred thousand pounds of the debt should be extinguished They engaged also, during the time that England should continue the war with Spain, to pay the garrisons of the cautionary towns. They stipulated that if Spain should invade England or the Isle of Wight or Jersey or Scilly, they should assist her with a body of 5,000 foot and 5,000 horse, and that in case she undertook any naval armament against Spain they should join an equal number of ships to hers by this treaty the queen was eased of an annual charge of a hundred and twenty thousand pounds soon after the death of burleigh the queen who regretted extremely the loss of so wise and faithful a minister was informed of the death of her capital enemy philip the second who after languishing under many infirmities expired in an advanced age at madrid this haughty prince desirous of an accommodation with his revolted subjects in the netherlands but disdaining to make in his own name the concessions necessary for that purpose had transferred to his daughter married to archduke albert the title to the low country provinces but as it was not expected that this princess could have posterity and as the reversion on failure of her issue was still reserved to the crown of spain the states considered this deed only as the change of a name and they persisted with equal obstinacy in their resistance to the spanish arms the other powers also of europe made no distinction between the courts of brussels and madrid and the secret opposition of france as well as the avowed efforts of england continued to operate against the progress of Albert as it had done against that of Philip. End of section 36 chapter 43 part 4